The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. And we're only going to look at the first 11 verses. Verse 1. It says, And then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. All right, so Paul is now beginning to address uh, the council, which is the Sanhedrin. And just to pick up with the story, if tonight is your first time to join us, we've discovered that, that Paul has gone to Jerusalem. He has had quite a reputation that he is going around the Roman Empire and telling Jews they don't have to follow the law, you don't have to be Jewish anymore, you don't need to be circumcised. No, you know, just uh, be a follower of the way and everything will be great. Nothing could be further from the truth. There was gossip, there was rumors, there was lies about Paul that he had given up being Jewish. And so he comes back, uh, he begins to make his appeal, and literally they're ready to tear Paul limb from limb. So a Roman, because Rome had a Roman garrison there in Jerusalem. You know how today, um, you know, Israel is pretty much in the front or maybe the second page of the headlines of the newspapers around the world because whatever happens there, even though it's a tiny nation because of the religious depth that goes back to the days 4,000 years ago of Abraham, it, it really concerns all of us. So that was true 2,000 years ago, even though they only had a 2,000 year history from Abraham till the time of Jesus. And so Rome was very concerned that rebellion could break out, revolt could break out. Uh, the Jewish people had a history of going after big empires, starting with Egypt, and it was part of their history that they would say, we're gonna go. And the truth of the matter is, in a few short years, Israel was going to revolt again in 66 AD and take on the Roman Empire. They would be crushed, but so there was a reason why they had Roman garrisons walking all around Jerusalem, especially at the Temple Mount, where things could get very political, very religious, very dicey, and there could be a revolt. And Rome would get, you know, if, if the centurions and the captains did not keep peace, they would get in trouble with Rome. So there was Roman soldiers who went and they rescued Paul and they brought him back. And now Paul has been brought, what it says is before the council. This means before the Sanhedrin. Because here's the problem. They're like, they're, the Jewish people did not have the right to give punishment or capital punishment. That was reserved only for Rome. So, you, you know, there had to be some kind of Roman laws broken. There had to be some kind of legitimate reason why this man, Paul, should be arrested by Romans. And, and the Roman captain is going, but he hasn't really broken any Roman laws. <laughs> we, these are religious issues. So the captain says, okay, look, you go before the Sanhedrin. That's the local, the Roman people would let the Sanhedrin kind of rule within the religious community of ancient Israel. And if you can come find a legitimate accusation that we can take on up the ladder to Rome, then we will do it. But he goes, I need some official charges. I mean, if this guy's dangerous, if he's gonna lead some kind of a rebellion that's gonna turn physical and an army bringing the kingdom of God or something, 
He goes, I need you to find it out and tell me. So Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin, which we believe Paul may have actually been a member of at one time earlier in his life. So that he's brought before the 70. And so here he says, so it's the whole Sanhedrin. In a moment, I'm going to describe who that all involves, the 70. It's both Sadducees and Pharisees. But this is how Paul begins, looking earnestly at the council. His life now is kind of in their hands. He said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Paul has an opportunity to share his testimony, and the first thing out of his mouth is, I have a clear conscience before the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, which included the high priest. He says, I stand before you today, and with the word of God, the commandments of the law of Moses, I stand here with a clear conscience before God. Now, Paul wasn't saying, I haven't done anything wrong or that I am sinless. What he meant was that I have dealt with every issue of my life before the word of God, before the law of God. My heart is pure before him. I've repented of everything I need to. I'm walking in relationship with him, and he's preparing the way to really share with them about Jesus and the resurrection. But I mentioned this just out of verse one when Paul says, I, you know, when he says, I have a clear conscience, he's going to be appealing to all the 70 there, which includes the high priest, and saying, basically, do you have a clear conscience? I have a clear conscience, and that word conscience is a favorite word of the Apostle Paul. You know, he wrote basically half of the New Testament. And Paul uses the word conscience over 20 times. Now, what is our conscience? I want to take a moment just to describe our conscience. Conscience is not the word of God. Conscience is not the law of God. It is something that is internal in us that that instinctively, intuitively tells us if something is right or wrong. If we have done something correct that we would agree with in our values and our emotions and our spirit and our heart, or if we have violated our conscience. Conscience is not the basis of right or wrong. The word of God is the basis of what's right or wrong. There's people that can have a conscience about things that were cultural or whatever that have nothing to do with the word of God. But still, conscience If I could give an analogy, conscience is like a window that lets light in. So conscience is not the basis of right and wrong, but it shows us how to apply right and wrong, and it's a lot like a window. So the cleaner the window is, the more light is able to come through. If your window gets smudged, if your window gets dirty, if you keep doing things that literally violate your conscience, it gets darker and darker and darker until eventually no light is able to come through. And therefore, you don't feel any sense of what is right or wrong. The Bible actually goes on to describe that uh, we can have a guilty conscience and then you can have a seared conscience. Now listen very carefully. If you do something that you've been taught that is wrong, and then you do it anyway, and you keep doing it, 
and your conscience in the beginning roars like a lion. Everything in you, it's like bells going off inside. You get anxious, you get nervous, but you keep, for whatever reason, you, you keep giving into it over a, an extended period of time, little by little, that, that conscience will, the, the window gets dirtier, less light comes through, you start not feeling any conviction. And let me, I wanna also say this. The Holy Spirit uses our conscience through the word of God to bring conviction. Can I hear an amen? Conviction. Can, look, feeling convicted by the word of God is a good thing. And when you feel that pang of conscience, it's a sign that you are a child of God, made in the image of God, that you're alive and that you have a conscience. At the same time, if you violate your conscience and then you keep demanding and pushing against the light, letting the window, as it were, get dark, less and less light comes in, and before you know it, you are walking in darkness and the Bible says your conscience can become seared and after a habit and pattern that goes on too long, you can get to the place where wow, I used to do this and I would break out in a sweat and I was terrified and I was fearful and I'd have nightmares and I felt horrible and guilty and now I do the same thing and I don't feel anything. Wow, congratulations, you've killed your conscience. But do you know that those people who do worse things and then violent things and you've probably seen people that, you know, here they are, they end up, you know, they got into a situation and then they murdered someone and then they, keep, they just keep going back to the same habits and the same patterns and they keep doing the same things over and over again and finally, they do things that you're going, wow, what happened to their humanity? What happened to their conscience? Well, they don't feel anything anymore so they keep doing more and more extreme things trying to feel alive because they feel dead. So. Can I just say this to you? If you have a tender conscience, and by the way, let me put it this way, and this is something worth writing down. The Holy Spirit will bring conviction to your spirit. To convict you means that wasn't right, that was wrong. Doesn't mean a hammer, it doesn't mean your life is over. The Lord does it in love and he wants to forgive us. And the moment we go, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. That's good to feel that. It's good to feel a conscience. It's good to feel guilty. It means you're alive. It means your spirit is alive. Your conscience is alive. When you don't feel anything, that's when it's scary. That's when it's dangerous. That's when, whoa, dude, you better wake up and watch out. So now, let me just say this though. Conviction is when you know that it's wrong, you feel, you come into agreement with God that it's wrong, and conviction is from the Holy Spirit, and what it does, it makes you wanna run and put your arms around the Lord and maybe cry and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know why I did that. I, I wish I hadn't done that. I'm sorry that I did it. Please forgive me. Conviction makes you wanna draw near to the Lord. But there is another thing called condemnation. Condemnation is not from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation makes you feel unforgivable makes you feel dirty and uncleanable. It is from Satan. He wants to separate you from God. How dare you pray now after what you've done? How dare you want to go into a holy church with all those holy people? He wants to condemn you. Condemnation is from Satan. 
Condemnation, which is from Satan, makes you run away from the light and makes you want to run away from holy places or from God. So condemnation is from the enemy. Conviction makes you want to draw near to the Lord and, and be you know, filled with life and tenderness and sensitivity and healing. And there's instant love and amazing grace. And his mercies are new morning by morning. Can I hear an amen? Hallelujah. Aren't you glad for the mercies of the Lord are new morning by morning? So I don't fear conviction. Conviction motivates me to draw and walk with the Lord because, you know, I don't like walking around feeling guilty and I don't like walking around doing the same stupid stuff. So I learn. It's like a child. Sometimes we learn what not to do because of the pain of the, you know, the guilty conscience and all. And you go, you know what? I used to do this over and over and over again. And you know what? I'm done. It, it, the only fruit of me doing that again is I feel guilty and I feel miserable and I feel horrible. So you know what? I'm gonna make a decision. I'm going in a new direction. I'm gonna obey the Lord, and when I obey the Lord, I find I have peace, I don't feel condemned, I sleep like a baby, I feel happiness and joy. That's called growing up. It's called, because we start as little babies when we're born again, but the idea is you don't stay a baby, but you grow to the full measure of the stature and maturity of Jesus Christ, amen? That's normal. That's how it is to be. So Paul says, and this is pretty powerful. I mean, you're, t you're standing before 70 of the holiest, most religious men, including the high priest in the entire nation of Israel. And he is saying, I have a clear conscience as I stand before you. It's a very powerful statement. Now, look at the reaction of it in verses two through five. And in verses two through five, I want you to know this. It is honorable to fight for what is right. If I didn't put the first one there, the beauty of a clear conscience. Let's just say that. The beauty of a clear conscience. But number two, verses two through five, it is honorable to fight for what is right. So after Paul starts off with, hey, men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. That's his opening statement. He's giving a defense before the Sanhedrin. And verse two, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike Paul on the mouth. He says, hey, that guy that just said he has a clear conscience, slap him. <laughs> slap him on the mouth. And so Paul gets slapped. So what does Paul do? Then Paul said to him, this is the high priest, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? <laughs> Woo, man. You know, Paul knows how to get right into it, right? I have a clear conscience, and the high priest says, smack that guy on the mouth. I believe Paul's statement about having a clear conscience provoked a violent response in the high priest because the high priest, who's supposed to be the holiest representative of Israel, did not have a clear conscience. So what I want to say to you is sometimes, you know, you're going about your, you know, life and business and maybe you're trying to share something from the Lord or God gives you something to share with a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, whatever, and you're in the spirit and you share with them something. Wow, I just feel like I want to encourage you. I want to give you a word or I've been praying for you, thinking about it. And you do that and then they go, Wah! and they just totally, you know, react to you. They manifest on you. Has that ever happened to anybody? You're like, what's going on? Where did they come from? They are reacting 
to the purity or maybe the uh, simplicity, the innocence, the sweetness of your spirit. And they are now feeling guilty. And I think that's what happened to the high priest. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy, the high priest, Ananias, the high priest. He is so enraged that he has Paul struck on the mouth. Did you know that was against the law? Against the Jewish law. When you have a Sanhedrin, and the you know, highest presiding member would be the high priest, there were rules and regulations about somebody that had an issue, religiously, to come before the Supreme Court of the religion of Judaism. And one was, when there's whatever accusation, you have to you know, basically believe the person's innocent until proven guilty. So the, you could not strike someone on the mouth or give punishment before he's even been charged with a crime. It was against the law. It was against what Jewish people believe. And this was a violation, not just by anybody, but an Orthodox Jewish member of the Sanhedrin, and not just a member of the Sanhedrin, the high priest who's supposed to be the highest level of honoring the purity and the tenacity of the word of God. So he violates the word of God. What he does is both illegal and inhumane. Paul's not even been proven guilty of anything. And really, the, the high priest should be the most fair. He should be the most honest, the most careful about following all the rules of the Sanhedrin. But let me tell you about Ananias. He was indeed one of the most corrupt men ever in the history, the long history of Israel, to ever hold the office of high priest. By the time that Jesus was there as a young man, and now Paul the Apostle is there as a young man, this guy had basically purchased a position somehow. And he literally also, according to uh, Jewish historians, stole from the other priests. How many would say that's not right for the high priest who's supposed to represent the law of God to steal, and he's not stealing from anybody, he's stealing from other priests. He was known to do that. And he was also known to do anything to increase his authority. He was also known as a brutal man who cared more for Rome's favor than for Israel's welfare. So he literally, right off the bat, does something illegal. And then, you know, Paul says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. That was, what does that mean, a whitewashed wall? Basically, it's calling someone out, calling him a hypocrite. You represent the law of God? You're supposed to represent God? You're supposed to represent a priest, let alone high priest? And you violate the very first thing you do is, is against the law? But here's what's interesting. What did Paul say? Now, Paul, who is Paul? Paul is a man that out of all the nation of Israel, the risen, resurrected Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, came when this guy was persecuting his followers on the road to Damascus and divinely revealed himself to him. Paul was not just some guy. Paul was a very, very special man. And the, the high priest has no idea that what he has done not only is wrong, but who he's messing with. Paul, I think, reacted. He spoke out of anger. 
because it was wrong and it was a violation. And he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, you hypocrite. And do you know that history, Paul spoke prophetically because God indeed smite Ananias a few years later. In 66 AD, when the Romans rebelled, it says that, and they were gonna take on Rome, but the person they went after first, these are the Jewish zealots, political zealots, we're gonna take on Rome, we're gonna clean out this fake Sanhedrin, and they went pursuing, and guess what? Uh, Ananias, he started fleeing, he ran to a cave, they followed him, they chased him, they found him, and he died by the hands of his own people, a horrible death. That was his life. That's where he ended, killed by his own people who called him out as a traitor. He was smitten, and I believe prophetically he had no idea that day that he was violating this man named the Apostle Paul. Prophetically, Paul had called him out. Now, the question some have asked is because as we go on, it says in verse 4, and those who stood by Paul said, do you revile God's high priest? In verse 5, then Paul said, Oh, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler for your people or of your people. (laughs) So people have, so immediately Paul, you know, he yells at the guy, he's angry, justifiably so. But then they go, you can't do that. That's high priest. It goes, oh, that's right. He's from all of these Orthodox Jewish guys. He goes, because actually in the law of Moses, it says you shouldn't speak evil of a ruler and somebody like the high priest. So he's quoting scripture, even as he's apologizing. But some have said, did Paul really not know it was the high priest? Paul was an Orthodox Jew. Surely he would have known. He used to be part of it. So what they say is, it's not that Paul did not know who he was per se. It's that Paul was being sarcastic. And what Paul was saying was, oh, surely you couldn't be the high priest because no real high priest would ever violate the word and the law of God publicly in such a way as you have. So you couldn't be the high priest. I didn't know that you were. And therefore, yes, the scriptures say that I should honor you. (laughs) How many of you feel that Paul might have been just a little sarcastic on that day? So, you know, what does this say to you and me? And there's no rebuke. It's not like the Lord sent somebody to rebuke Paul or whatever else. What is Paul saying and what is Paul doing? I believe that there's a very interesting little divine revelation here in Acts chapter 23 of Paul feeling anger at someone in a position of authority who is publicly acting like a crazy, crazy hypocrite. Does that ever happen in politics or the world or a situation where somebody is acting beyond what they should be? And was the apostle Paul maybe saying in a subtle way, I do respect your position as the high priest, but I do not respect you as a man. Not per- there's nothing personal about it. What, what aggravated Paul was that he reacted and you know, did something. You don't strike someone who's just literally stepped into the box. Okay, you know, here's you opening, opening statement and you go, bam, that's punishment. That violates everything the word of God and the, the law of God is all about. So I believe what Paul was saying is that we must always respect positions of authority, whether in a religious environment, political environment, 
But at the same time, we can make recognitions that sometimes the character does not match the office that is being held. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? And that's the example that is found, and it's interesting to hear the commentators kind of weigh in and, and seek a little bit the humanity of Paul, and maybe we can feel that, that same way, what it is. Now look with me, verses six through nine. This is fascinating. And I'm gonna just put the, the outline here. At times, the word of God brings necessary division. All right, so Paul opened up. I am standing before you, the Sanhedrin, the holiest men of Israel, with a good conscience. The high priest has him smote on the mouth. Paul reacts. But now beginning in verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part, so we're talking about the Sanhedrin, 70, these are the rulers of the entire Jewish nation, several million people. But when Paul perceived that one part of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees, and that the other part were Pharisees. These are two different uh, divisions of Judaism at the time. He cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope of the res and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. That's what this is all about. And when he had said this, a dis dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided, for Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and no angel, and no spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, Paul, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God." So they end up, Paul just mentions, hey, I'm standing here. He's led by the Holy Spirit. Paul declares the real issue today is not about me. It's not about where I've been. He goes, but I am a Pharisee. So all the Pharisees are going, right on. And he goes, and I'm being condemned today. The big issue is I believe in the resurrection. He wanted to go on and tell them about Jesus is risen from the dead. And this was a, a belief that the Sadducees and the Pharisees bitterly debated over and over again. So they turn in, it turns into a riot. They go, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He's one of us. He believes just like us. So here's a couple of observations. Number one, this is the Apostle Paul, post, I've seen Jesus, gone to Damascus. I, I was blinded, but then I was supernaturally healed in the name of Jesus. I got baptized, repented of my sins, got filled with the Spirit. Now I've been a missionary. And I've been going around the Roman world, leading people to the Lord, both Jewish and Gentile. Now he's standing before the Sanhedrin. And as he is there, he says, I am, I am a Pharisee. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. I am a Pharisee. Paul does not say I was a Pharisee. He says, I am a Pharisee, meaning I'm still Jewish. I'm still one of you. I still believe in the word of God, and I believe in the law. And like a good Pharisee, I believe in angels. I believe in life after death. I believe in the resurrection. My whole life is about one Yeshua of Nazareth who is alive from the dead. It's where he was headed with that. And then all of a sudden, so Paul divided this, and they start yelling, if you can imagine. They're standing up and yelling at each other, fighting. With, they're not even, Paul's not even in the picture anymore. It's a big fight and a big debate. So let me briefly describe to you what the Sadducees were. 
Sadducees were Jews who were, they did not believe in life after death. They believe that when you die, that's it. The dirt covers you, you go into sleep, and you know, everything is gone. They don't believe in heaven, they don't believe in hell, they don't believe in a day of accountability for your deeds, for eternity, and they certainly don't believe in the resurrection. So all they believe in is you get a little bit of life here and now. And th- but they wanted to keep their Jewish cultural identity. Yeah, we came from Abraham and the 12 and the, you know, interesting story. So culturally we're Jewish, but they were like liberal, you know, in their belief system because they didn't believe in anything spiritual or anything supernatural. So obviously for them it was about as much money as you can possibly get, as much power, as much wealth, as much, you know, because it's only in this life. So they compromised over and over and over again to Rome. What do you guys want? They said, we'll speak Greek like you guys, and, and we'll take on your culture and your practices, and we'll even dress like you guys, and, but we're still Jewish. And they were all about the power, and that's what basically they were all about. The Pharisees on the other side, meaning separated ones, were Orthodox Jews. They believed in the Bible. They believed in angels. They believed in the spirit. They believed in life after death. They believed in the resurrection. They believed that you're accountable before God. And the whole hope, uh, you know, the distinguishing mark for them was the resurrection. Indeed, in their interpretation, in the mission, it says, all Israel share in the world to come except the one who says resurrection has no origin in the law. That was a Pharisee. And Paul knew that by defending this important belief, he could divide the council in front of him, and the members were arguing with themselves, which is exactly what happened. The the witness of the entire book of Acts is about the resurrection. So here's what I want to do. I want to share with you a word from Jesus for our time. Because Paul does that, they get you know, divided and they're now arguing and debating, which was really a perfect thing for Paul to talk about because that's what he really wanted to bring to the whole Jewish world. To the side that doesn't believe it, no, there is a resurrection. And to the people that did believe in the resurrection, I know who the Messiah is, Jesus of Nazareth. And he wanted to be able to show them that. So what Paul did was he brought division. So listen to this. I want you to look at me in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 and 52. This is Jesus. And I want you to read this scripture out loud with me. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided three against two, and two against three. In a way, what I want to share with you is there is a time and there is a season for everything. In fact, let me read this to you from the Old Testament. It was written uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. Hopefully, you have heard this or read this at some point. Um, There is a time for everything under its season. Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, written by King Solomon, so long ago, said this, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, 
a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And he goes on a little bit further, but listen to this. There is a time for everything. And Jesus, when he came with the first coming of the kingdom of heaven said, I came to bring division. What is that? Wait, don't we want unity? Yes, within the family of God. But within the world, each person has the capacity of free will to make a choice. Do you want a relationship with your father, the creator, and with your son, or do you not? Because he will never force. There's nobody who is forced to go to heaven. The only people that go to heaven are people that want to go to heaven. The only people who have a relationship with God are people who want. Now, God wants a relationship with all of humanity, every last single human being. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's shown his side. But it's interesting, he will not force his way in or upon someone who does not open the door. So there is a time when Jesus came, he said, not everybody will believe, not everybody will follow. And it was an interesting time of division. That was in the first coming of the Messiah. Now, let me just share with you this real quick. I believe now 2,000 years later in the year 2021, we are literally in the beginnings of what is soon, I believe, to be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ or the Lord coming for his people. Can I hear an amen on that? I really do. And guess what? It is also like his first coming, therefore a time of division. You've got to decide. This is not, you know, well, let's all sing Kumbaya and we're all going to be one. It's going to, you know, everybody, and you're like, it has, you know, for the last year and a half, it's like every time we, we have one area that people are divided about, it's like the next week, a new area comes up that people are divided about. It's almost like an endless, weekly, here's the new thing to get divided on. And it's come all the way to families, husbands and wives, children's, churches, do it, don't do it, with it, without it, and all the rest. May I say to you that I believe that we, we therefore have to be very, very careful in the midst of this, that you listen to the voice of the Lord. Because I'm telling you, Paul throws this little bomb into the midst of the Sanhedrin and he knows I got half of them that are with me. They believe in the resurrection. But even though they believed theologically, doctrinally, truly in the resurrection, there were some of them that were not willing to say, and therefore I believe that Jesus, Yeshua of Nazareth, is the fulfillment of the resurrection. They were doctrinally correct, but they were not personally correct. And there you have the Apostle Paul going. Now, we read just a few chapters ago that there were tens of thousands of Jews, even religious and even Orthodox Jews, who did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but not everybody. So what I want to say is we are living in a time where God is allowing a season of division. So... This is a time not just to believe theologically, doctrinally in good things or right things, but where you personally, like don't just be a Pharisee, I believe theoretically in life after death, but be like the Apostle Paul, be like Peter and John and James, 
I believe in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Savior, who is the Messiah, who died on the cross for my sins, who was buried, who rose from the dead, whose spirit has been poured out, whose kingdom is coming, who sits upon the throne, who rules and who reigns. He is the one that I am putting all my trust in, and nothing will separate me from that faith and walk in my life. Amen? So read with me this next next verse, Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. Let's read this out loud. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So we need to hear the voice of the Lord. And I, I want to say it again, and I, this is a theme I will continue to repeat because I keep hearing it from the Lord himself. He says, son, you need to hear my voice and follow me and obey me. Everything that I say to you, you need to hear my voice, you can hear my voice, and follow me and obey me. And then tell my sheep and tell my flock and tell my children I am speaking to them today, not just about good doctrines and right beliefs, but we are living in days of such great division. You need, we need to be able to hear the voice of the Lord and be able to obey him and follow him as we continue moving forward. He will speak to you. You can hear his voice. He will go before you. He will provide for you. He will protect you. His voice will reveal himself to you and we can surrender to him and follow him where he leads. Amen? Amen. Okay, so last verse. We're going to wrap it up. So Paul, you know, throws the resurrection grenade. They're yelling and arguing and going back and forth, and it's very entertaining, I'm sure. But then... um, Verse 10 and 11, it says, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul be pulled to pieces by them, (laughs) they're ready to pull Paul apart again, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So several hundred Roman soldiers show up in what could have been a mob. They get in, they grab Paul, and they bring him into jail. Now I want you to think for just a moment, Paul is, again, this is the second time he's created a riot by trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and almost got torn apart, and now he's led by these soldiers, and he ends up in a dark Roman dungeon cell. He didn't get to finish his testimony. He didn't get to, you know, say, yeah, okay, yeah, we Pharisees believe in the resurrection. Let me tell you about Yeshua of Nazareth. He didn't get to finish, and it was the dream of his life. And I have a feeling that Paul was very, very, very discouraged. And I want to close tonight with this theme. I wonder if I speak to anybody else who is discouraged, tired of the wrangling, the wrestling, the unending fighting. It seems like we can't get unified on anything. Some feel like the wheels are coming off the bus. Maybe if it's not our nation, the world, what's going on? And it can get very disturbing, very fearful, very anxious. So the Lord came, look at this in verse 11. We're gonna, here's the verse we're going to close on. But the following night. So there's one night where Paul, I think, was in the darkness, alone, 
Maybe he felt like he was a failure. He didn't get to finish what he started. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. I love this. This is what the Lord said to Paul, verse 11. Good job, but you're not finished. There's more work for you to do. Paul may have felt like, I'm done, I'm over. I'm sitting in this dungeon, I didn't get to finish it. They're gonna come against me. I'm not even gonna get to finish my ministry. And he had always had a heart's desire to go to Rome and and the Lord comes to him in the darkness of that night when the fears come upon him, when his trust in God's plan may have seemed to falter. He's worried if God is gonna allow me to finish what I started, am I gonna make it? And in the midst of his greatest hour of depression, loneliness, emptiness, and darkness, that night, Jesus, because he'd had visions before. The Lord would appear to him many times in a vision and spoke to him, but this time, it's as if the physical resurrected Jesus stood right next in the cell to the Apostle Paul. And he said, be of good cheer, which is basically, have courage, Paul. You've done well, my son. I'm proud of you. You were obedient to me. You gave your witness. And what I want to say is, good job. He didn't say, you blew it. You didn't finish. He says, good job. Be encouraged. And he goes, not only that, I'm so proud of you, I'm interpreting, that you're going to get to do your biggest heart's desire. You're going to get to preach before Caesar in Rome and give a witness to the most powerful man in this world. And I'm going to make sure. So Paul knows they're not going to execute me tomorrow. They're not going to beat me up. They're not going to stone me. Uh, They're not going to crucify me. I'm not done. God still has a purpose and a plan for my life. Be of good courage, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, you shall go on with me to Rome. So the next day, Paul's like, he's so you know, relaxed. He's like, yeah, you guys do whatever you want. I know I'm getting out of here because I'm not done. God has a purpose and God has a plan for my life. So I want to say to you tonight, you may feel like it's all wrapped up. You're done. You don't know where you're going to go, what God has for you. And I want to say this, there's more for you to do. You're not done. God's not finished with you. His hand is upon you. You are still here. And he is with you, standing right next to you. Be emboldened. Be courageous. And keep going. I'm proud of you. Keep watching me, following me, walking with me. You're not alone. Though I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And you shall fulfill your life's destiny and your life's purpose. And in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, you're going to be standing before me in the glory that I've prepared for you before the foundations of the earth were laid. I can't wait to show you all of eternity in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.